0: Hello, dear listener. It turned out we captured simply too much gold when we sat down to record our Mike Myers episode of the podcast. So we're bringing you this special mini-sode of when we were young, where we'll discuss the histories of our own personal taste in pop culture, and we'll revisit a non-sequelized Mike Myers movie for a change, 1993's So I Married an Axe Murderer, Hope you enjoy this, and join us in the coming weeks for our new episodes on 90s SNL Breakout stars Chris
1: Farley and Adam Sandler. Before we talk more about Mike Myers in normal voices (laughs) that have absolutely no inflection in them at all, I do have a question for you guys. And that question is not, do I make you horny?
2: Well, you already know the answer to that.
0: Yeah, we've had several conversations with the When We Were Young HR department about asking (laughs)
1: that question. (laughs) The answer is, yeah, baby, yeah, obviously. Now I'm just going to see how many of them I can get in in a completely normal voice. My actual question is inspired from Austin Powers, however, and it is, what year were you frozen in?
2: (laughs) What does that mean?
1: It means what year was your taste in pop culture crystallized? My answer is the year that Austin Powers came out, 1997, a year when a lot of things that I love came out. That was the year that Buffy the Vampire Slayer debuted on TV, Scream 2 came out, I Know What You Did Last Summer, Romeo and Michelle, Titanic, Contact, The Last World, My Best Friend's Wedding, Dante's Peak, and Anaconda, and Ally McBeal all debuted. So when I was thinking about the time that my taste in pop culture and like the things that I love the most, like most were kind of concentrated... It was right around 1997. I was just wondering if there's like sort of a moment where you feel like your guys' tastes kind of gelled together around any sort of particular moment in pop culture for me, I mean, I did look at that year and was like, that is definitely the year when I started liking things that were like the things that I like now. And and that some of those things are still my favorites. Like, I outgrew the things that came out beforehand, but those things remained as part of sort of my pop culture DNA. I just noticed that, like, it was clearly the year that Austin Powers came out that was the year that was kind of a gateway for me. Like, I obviously ended up liking more things after this and, like, sort of more mature things, but that this was like the year that it felt like a lot of the things I like, like disaster movies and creature features started kind of coming together.
0: So as far as like specific time periods that I kind of obsess on or that kind of define my taste, as far as movies go, and music too, to some extent, the 70s, (laughs) a lot of genres obviously like made huge breakthroughs musically and especially in terms of film in the 70s. And it was a very unique moment historically where a lot of different kinds of creators got a lot of freedom and a lot of support to kind of pursue the full extent of their insane visions. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, not just the things that were made then, but the artists who've come since then who were influenced by the 70s, both in movies and in music, especially, they very much tend to grab me. A lot of the kind of range of styles that predominate back then really just resonates with me still. And then as far as like when my own kind of taste in pop culture crystallized, I would say it was probably 98, 99, 2000. Like, I don't know if I can give a much narrower answer than that, and I don't even know if I can necessarily pin it to any one thing. Because I think it was just, like, reaching an age where I'd watched enough of different kinds of things that my, like, opinions of different kinds of movies or different kinds of music started to actually, like, congeal. And also, at that point, I was starting to not only be on the internet, but start to get somewhat faster internet. And so, literally, like, that was a time in which I started being able to watch and listen to things that I wouldn't have otherwise had access to. So that kind of range of years, I would say, was definitely a particularly intense one as far as me intentionally seeking... Seeking out older movies and seeking out older albums to kind of give a try. And I don't know if I can, again, like tie it to any one particular thing, because that period of time is definitely before I like decided on a lot of my favorites. At that time, I wasn't super into Smashing Pumpkins, which became my, like, first favorite band ever. Wasn't super into, like, Radiohead. That period of, like, 97 or 98 to around roughly 2000, I think really kind of set the path of where my tastes would go after that.
2: My first thought was, oh, 1999, clearly, because so many good movies came out that year that it was, like, a red-letter year for movies like The Blair Witch Project and American Beauty at the time, (laughs) for me. Magnolia. Being John Malkovich, I think, was the first big movie that year where I was like, you could do that in a movie? (laughs) Like, I had no idea. The second one was... Magnolia and then the third was Blair Witch Project like that was like just a (laughs) crazy year for movies things you've never seen before but I think the first one was 96 because that was the year I got into independent film and I saw every single movie nominated for an Oscar and all of them are just still so good and I have a very strong connection to those movies like movies that people don't even talk about anymore like Shine with Jeffrey Rush and Secrets and Lies which I recently rewatched and I loved that movie growing up and it's like just a straight up drama from Britain this itty bitty small movie it's so good and like the people versus larry flint obviously fargo even jerry Maguire at the time i loved and the english patient i loved at the time like all of these movies like just meant so much to me lars von trier the first movie of his i saw breaking the waves and then it became like a really important filmmaker to me for a while sling blade like these are just movies that i feel like people don't think of often maybe fargo they do or Jerry Maguire, but I owned all these movies and rewatched them at age 13. And these are not like children's movies. And I think that just kind of stayed with me for a very long time. Like being that person that cares not for what's for children at that time. She cares not.
1: <laughs> I did actually guess that 96 was going to be your answer <laughs> yeah. um because obviously I've known Becky a long time but <laughs> when we started film school like I had not seen a lot of those movies yet because I was maybe like a, about a year like I said my my year was kind of like 97 and a lot of the movies that I <laughs> named were
2: An- Anaconda and <laughs> maybe slightly
1: less <laughs> revered than some of the movies <laughs> Becky talked about but that was the year that I started taking film more seriously and kind of being more into like Entertainment Weekly and and, and reading what was going on so it was Reading about some of those movies that were being nominated for Oscars, but I wasn't actually seeing them yet for another like year or two. If I had had a second answer, I would have been 99, like for this Mm -hmm. exact reason Becky said. But yeah, I remember Becky introducing me to a lot of those movies. Did I show you some of those movies? Secrets and Lies. Oh, I did? Mm Oh, you're welcome.
2: And I I think a few more
1: of them. Um, And I just remember that about, you. like, 96, I think at the time, you said, was, like, one of your big film years. So, we know each other well, I guess, is, is the moral of that story. It's probably not a coincidence that all our years are very close together, because I think that's just, like, the time in your life that the things that you love start transitioning from whatever you loved as a kid. Some of that stuff you might carry forward. Obviously, we talk about that a lot. Like, for me, Jurassic Park, I loved as a kid still do but like there's kind of a time when your tastes kind of start like shifting and like you kind of start figuring out what you're actually into versus and like leaving behind some of the stuff that you liked before
0: yeah and I mean like now that I'm thinking of it it's also very much I think tied to that stage of pre-adolescence where you're starting to feel the social pressure to define yourself as a person and so that becomes kind of like a cauldron of an experience where like I feel like almost anything we might have watched during that time would have hit us harder or, like, would have been something that we kind of weaved into the nest of how we saw ourselves.
1: Mm-hmm. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely was, like, known as Sarah Michelle Gellar fan at the time. So that was, like, <laughs> one of my things that everyone that I knew knew about me. and They and
0: knew him as the boy who loved the blondes.
1: That is also <laughs> true.
2: That's your autobiography name. <laughs>
1: We will now move on to the non sequel spawning portion of the evening.
2: <laughs> what? How could
1: that be? A movie that had quite a different trajectory than Myers' other 90s comedies. The premise for So I Married an Axe Murderer was originally conceived by screenwriter Robbie Fox in 1987 as a vehicle for Woody Allen.
2: <laughs> Whoa. That was weird. I thought he just started in his own movie. I'm
1: having, like, whiplash right now. <laughs> <laughs> The genesis of the idea was what if Annie Hall was a serial killer? Or <laughs> might be. And Allen wanted too much money to direct the film. So Myers came aboard. When he came aboard, he extensively rewrote the script, changing Charlie from Jewish to Scottish, and changing many story beats and jokes so he could perform broader SNL-style comedy, such as playing his own father. Sharon Stone was initially pursued for the female lead. She also (laughs) wanted to do dual roles and play both Harriet and her sister Rose. Studio executives said no, and then she declined the role. When that didn't pan out, producer Rob Freed turned to his girlfriend, Nancy Travis, Thomas Schlamme, who was mostly known for TV work at the time, and still is, eventually got the directing gig and has called this the most difficult experience of his career. Oh, wow. He wanted to make a more mature film than Myers did, so they clashed a lot on set. Myers is said to have occasionally holed up in his trailer refusing to work during the shoot. So I Married an Axe Murder opened in theaters July 30th, 1993. It made $11.5 million at the box office. Not very much. And it opened to mixed reviews. Leonard Clady of Variety said, So I Married an Axe Murderer may have to dodge some angry Scotsmen, but otherwise should click with those looking for slightly upscale humor that's not averse to a few well-placed cheap shots. It's a delightful and unexpected surprise. David Cronkie, writing for The Hollywood Reporter, said, Even Wayne Campbell would blow chunks at So I Married an Axe Murderer. <laughs> Mike Meyer's new vehicle suggests, with the So in the title, an offhanded postmodern take on the overheated Roger Corman flick. But the film assumes anything but a wry, ironic tone. The result is a sloppy, nearly two hour riff on that tiredest of sitcom conceits. When
3: well, you looked at your watch and you said I wasn't late for you, I was wondering who it was late for.
1: Well, not me. No, no. I like the nightlife.
3: I like the boogie. Hmm. <laughs> I'll make the tea then. You know, you know, maybe it is late. You know, I'll be honest with you. I had a really great time tonight. I'd, I'd really love to kiss you, but I think that if I kiss you, we'll end up kissing on the couch. And if we end up kissing on the couch, then chances are we'll kiss in the bedroom. And if we kiss in the bedroom, then, you know, that's that's the part I always rush into. And I just don't think it's a good idea to rush into spending
1: the night together.
3: I want to spend the night together.
1: I have no problem with that. So what did we think of, so I married an ex-murderer? Fuck, Mary kill. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think this movie has a great title. Uh,
1: so we'll marry the title.
2: Marry the title. <laughs> I, gr- I grew up watching this and quoting this a lot with my sister. So I have fond memories. But the memories did not hold up. <laughs> Besides one or two laughs, I really got nothing out of it. Anymore, I felt like there were some funny moments, but like ultimately, like I did not care about this relationship. I didn't find a lot of it believable, grounded. Yeah, I was bored. Honestly, watching this again, boy, are there a lot of '90s music, uh, like. (laughs) Spin Doctors. There she, she goes. goes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have always hated that song. Although I realized that I hated this expensive and the richer version more than I hate the original.
2: So. Yeah,
0: that's, yeah, I would hope so. Uh, I yeah, would hope uh, so. so.
2: And then I have a lot to say about just coffee houses in general. <laughs>
1: <But> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> That opening scene is, like, my nightmare is that someone has actually, like, reused someone else's old coffee in your coffee.
2: Well, yeah. And also just, like, that place is, like, uh, it's, like, one of those um, mazes at Halloween Horror Nights. Like, there's so many rooms of, like, <laughs> of people standing and sitting. It's just, like, I've never seen a more packed coffee house in my life.
1: <laughs> Only in 1993 <laughs> would you crazy. ever in 1993, see... 1993 San Francisco, yeah. Coffee house. That's that happening. <laughs> Well,
0: I still view this movie as a documentary. Um, i amazed what? It hasn't been adapted into a true crime series of some sort. This was definitely one of the Mike Myers's that I came to later, like in high school, I would say, because a lot of my friends in high school particularly loved this movie, like out of all the ones he'd ever done. And I feel like seeing this movie in high school was kind of the perfect time. Like, I think that if I had seen it anywhere near when it came out... I would not have understood, like, so many of the references, Um, because it's also, like, taking a lot from just the whole, like, vibe of Friends and the kind of, like, coffee shop, or at least that version of coffee shop culture, such as it was. Yeah, well,
2: this came out in 1993. Friends premiered in 94.
0: Weird. Okay. Well, then, friends ripped
1: this off. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone ripped this off. Given how I I literally
2: looked this up, why were coffee houses so big in pop culture in the nineties? And I think it's a combination of Starbucks launched their store, but in nineteen ninety four they launched. People wanted good internet and good coffee, and laptops became a thing. But I was just like, "What is with the nineties and coffee houses?" But I think it's also like
0: the slam poetry, or yeah, slam poetry type stuff. So yeah, I loved this at the time. I will freely admit now that it's not among his funniest movies. There's still a lot of parts that entertain me. And in a way, I still get a lot of joy out of this just from a repeat nostalgia. Whenever I watch this, I'm not going into it looking to be critical of it. I'm just looking to play the hits. And I think in a lot of ways, it does play the hits. And I mean, I think there are a lot of really funny quotable lines in it. I would definitely say that this character is very inconsistent and all over the place and really is not much of a character so much as just a pure vehicle for funny lines. Yeah, I mean, I I do... Love Amanda Plummer. Always love Amanda Plummer. She's always fun. That's
2: Honey Bunny, right? Yeah. What about Kramer being in this? That's so fucking weird. I
0: think his scene is hilarious. I think he's hilarious in that scene. What's
2: more random, Kramer being in this movie or the Full House house being in this movie?
1: (laughs) Both. I don't know. (laughs) Did you
2: did you recognize that? I didn't. They're on the giant lawn in that exact area. You know when they when they pan out of the credits of the Full House house. That's that it's a very iconic part of san francisco
0: Mm. okay i know what you're talking about now i also think i had i think i had a jigsaw puzzle (laughs) of that same area i'm not even kidding like an 800 piece jigsaw puzzle of that exact area i also love phil hartman's alcatraz thing in this phil hartman has a bit in this he's a guard at a prison and talks about ocular penetration if you will
3: now this is something the other tour guides won't tell you In this particular cell block, machine gun Kelly had what we call in the prison system a bitch. And one night, in a jealous rage, Kelly took a makeshift knife, or shiv, and cut out the bitch's eyes. Hey, you know another thing about Uh, Harry I love? And as if this wasn't enough retribution for Kelly, the next day he and four other inmates took turns pissing into the bitch's ocular cavities. This
1: way to the cafeteria!
0: It's definitely not as funny now, but that was one of the things that that really leapt out to me when I first saw it, because I... I'm a huge Phil Hartman fan. I I don't make any argument for this being one of his stronger movies. I, I just kind of like to watch it in a comfort food kind of way.
1: Yeah, I mean, I thought a lot of the cameos were the funniest part of the movie, which isn't really a good sign. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's for your not movie. a testament. I appreciated that this finally gave the world a look at Meyer's off-teased bum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as there is a nude scene, uh, yeah. a comedic it's nude true. scene. This movie made me appreciate Wayne's World more (laughs) Uh, because that movie has a tone that allows for a lot of silliness where I don't really question, Mm -hmm. oh, why are they doing this? Like, that doesn't make any sense. You get that that's kind of the world that you're in in Wayne's World. Right. This movie is very caught tonally between being kind of like a straightforward rom-com where you like believe the characters and being just like is silly. Mm-hmm. I think, like, the premise of it has a lot of potential for, like, a really fun Black comedy. Maybe, like, kind of a satire of basic instinct, you know, like, fearing, like, the beautiful woman that you're about to marry. And instead just went kind of broad and generic. Like, the idea of a man who's so afraid of commitment that he believes his girlfriend is a serial killer, like, that's a great premise. I imagine what happened is that the original script, like, actually carried through on that idea a little bit more and, mm-hmm. like that that's what the movie was about. That's not really what this movie is about, except for then, like, kind of throws that back in, like, kind of toward the end, but...
0: Yeah. No, like, it really kind of seems to abandon its central plot.
2: He's supposed to be like non committal.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. That
2: was thrown away in one of the most obvious bits of exposition I've ever heard. The two best friends are talking. So tell me why you, why you guys didn't work out. I told you this already. It's Remind because... me again
1: why. I was just like, oh my God. Uh. Yeah. If they turned to the
0: camera and winked, it would have been funnier.
3: <laughs> so tell me again. Why did you pick up with Sherry? Tony, I told you already, all right? She's a thief. You don't honestly believe that. Tony, she's a klepto. All right? Listen, to this day, I still don't know where my cat is.
2: Charlie, every time you meet a nice girl that you can get close to, you come up with
3: some paranoid reason why you should break up with her. That's not true. I broke up with those girls for very good reasons. Oh, really? Yes. Really? What about Jill? She was in the mafia.
2: I didn't get any of that really about... Like, I think I was, like, three-fourths of the way, and my husband was, you know, watching over my shoulder, and he's like, what's the moral of this story? And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, something about commitment? I mean, he was kind of right to be afraid. (laughs) So I don't know. (laughs)
1: Okay, so, like, I can't, I know I probably shouldn't take it seriously, but the plot of this makes no, (laughs) like, not even any semblance of sense. Like, even, even for, like, a broad comedy, like, it just, like, does not add up
2: okay walk us through
1: okay so for those who haven't seen it uh which is probably most people He meets Nancy Travis, who is a butcher, and they fall in love, and she seems perfectly nice and normal. But because there's an article in a world news report, like one of those bad tabloid magazines that has basically fake news, especially in the 90s, there's an article about a woman who is a serial killer. No one knows who she is. She's Mrs. X, but she has three dead exes, and those correspond to Nancy Travis's exes, as Mike Myers finds out.
2: Because she talks in her sleep? Is that (laughs) why...
1: Yeah, I mean, okay.
2: That's, Chris is rolling his eyes that's right now, listeners. Enough. Yeah.
1: But okay, so what it ends up being, sorry, spoiler for this movie, <laughs> but Nancy Travis has married all three of these men who ended up dead, but does not realize that they're dead. Her sister killed them all after they got married and left breakup notes so that Nancy Travis would think they broke up with her.
2: All three times for all three marriages. all three times. Abruptly,
1: immediately, overnight. So she had to move cities every time, presumably change her name because, like, the police would obviously know, like, if she got married three times, that would be a legal record, right? Yes,
2: also a death certificate, get it, you know, yeah.
1: (laughs) Like, the media, like, at least this tabloid news story knows that these people are dead, but she does not know Any of these people are dead. So she buys this all.
2: So let's say the first one, she's like, my husband left me. He left me this note. Why do I have to flee the state? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Why do I have to
3: flee
1: the state? (laughs) So her sister also has to be coming with her every time.
3: Yeah.
1: Is this your place?
3: No, this is our place. Harriet's in mine. She just sort of comes and goes, but she always ends up here, though. She didn't speak of me. No, she didn't speak of you. Um, she talked about uh, a martial arts guy and there was some discussion about Ralph. Oh, really? She spoke about them. Well, she she talked about the martial arts guy and um, actually she kind of shouted Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you know Harriet. Well, actually, I don't. But you did have sex with her. Hello. I'm gonna go now. I'm not gonna tell Harriet that anything happened. Well, Rose. Rose.
1: Nothing did happen.
3: Don't worry, Charlie. Just be
1: careful. Her sister, who is very creepy in in the first scene that she's in, which is really only one scene. She
2: gives off major villain vibes immediately.
1: So it's very obvious. And so the sister has to be following her, you know, moving with her every time. Doesn't kill them off before they get married. Like, always waits Uh until the honeymoon. Yeah. Even though that would make it much harder. (laughs) In the end of this movie, she's going to kill Mike Myers in their honeymoon suite with an axe, but has also written a breakup note. What is her plan? (laughs) Like, I get... She's probably just deranged at that point. But, like...
2: But, yeah, did she kill them all with an axe?
1: She's an axe murderer.
2: Yeah, I get...
1: So, it's just, like, this is a movie where you shouldn't think very much about it. But I'm just, like, thinking about the plot the whole time yeah. because it's so convoluted. Like, it should just be simple. Like, and there are ways to do this, like, simply and just and make it funny. And it doesn't have to be complicated. But it just... Like, you have to believe that Nancy Travis is an idiot. <laughs> that the serial... Like, her sister is also an idiot but also just deranged. Also, I'm And the sorry, police are idiots.
2: But you ha- if you're gonna marry somebody, you have to tell them you've been married before. That relationship is built on lies anyway. Three
1: times, and... <laughs> That should be part of her character, then. Like, that's also not really part of her character. And so I feel yeah. like Nancy Travis in this movie, I feel like, is good if this is a rom-com. Like, I think she and Mike Myers actually have decent chemistry and like, the scenes. Yeah. So, like, she's not bad, but I feel like this is mostly, like, direction and casting. But, like, if you want to do this where, like, there's actual suspense, there's no suspense that she's... No. Uh, killer because a you meet the sister early and you're like well she's weird she's gotta be like she (laughs) she has no reason to be here otherwise and i think sharon stone could have actually really done this well is like kind of because she did it in basic instinct right Mm -hmm. like she played like she's appealing but she's also like oh maybe she's a killer and you needed that Mm -hmm. kind of like tension here and it's just not here and it's like it's not even really trying to do it
2: what was the other movie that Sharon Stone should have been in that she would have been great? That- what
1: movie shouldn't Sharon Stone? We, have been? Honestly, we talked about it. That's a long
2: list. Oh, it was Temple of Doom. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Sharon Stone should have been cast yes. in a lot more. I
1: feel like every movie is like Sharon Stone was considered.
2: Like <laughs> yeah. I also
0: think she would have brought an appropriate amount of weirdly charged erotic energy to this movie. Like I honestly yeah. think it would have been a much more interesting performance for that character.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really misses an opportunity. Like, why isn't she trying to kill him up until the end? Like, it would have been fun and it would have made more sense why he thinks she's a killer if, like, there was all these near misses on his life throughout.
0: Yes, that would have been great and would have had a lot more kind of actual action and set pieces to hang it on. It's
2: because it sounded like they pitched the elevator pitch of axe murderer, honeymoon killer. But then they had to try and write the screenplay, and they were like, "Well, actually, this doesn't make sense." But they just did it anyway.
1: Yeah, and I think Mike Myers rewrote a lot of this for himself, and like the Scottish stuff in this movie, like he's playing his own dad in this movie, and it's it's not necessarily bad, but it's just like it's not the tone of the rest of this. Like it doesn't belong here.
3: Move that melon of yours and get the paper if you can. Pulling that gargantuan cranium about. I'm not kidding. That boy's head's like Sputnik. Spherical, but quite pointy in parts. Well, that was offside, wasn't it? (laughs) He'll be crying himself to sleep tonight on his huge pillow. Hey, Mum, I find it interesting that you refer to the Weekly World News as the paper. The paper contains facts. This paper contains facts. And this paper has the eighth highest circulation in the whole wide world. Right? Plenty of facts. Pregnant man gives birth. That's a fact. There it is, look. This Mrs X, the honeymoon murderer. She marries men under fake identities and then she murders them. She's murdered three men already. Look, victim number one was a lounge singer. Victim number two, a Russian martial arts expert. No! And she's also killed a plumber named Ralph Elliot.
2: It's not about family. It's about a relationship. And also, and so, it's, that's yeah.
0: some of the most remembered stuff from this Mm -hmm. movie like talking about the three sizes of head but i completely agree with you like that's a sketch that comes from a totally different movie or story that gets plopped into here
1: and so it's funny like this of of the movies you know that we're talking about in the 90s the other two are characters that he created and are very suited to his things and this is him coming into like a project that already existed and Mm -hmm. trying to mike myers it and i think it doesn't work like he's he's also like he has like that Jim Carrey quality and Jim Carrey has you know gone on to be more subtle in other movies but like especially in the 90s like it's just like you're always aware that you're watching Jim Carrey and he's always kind of doing a bit like Mm -hmm. even in a kind of normal scene like there's a little bit of shtick somewhere and that's what Mike Myers is kind of doing here too and I just don't think this is the kind of movie that like this movie would have benefited from just like someone who's playing it more straight. Mm -hmm.
2: I agree. I think it would have been even more forgettable if it was played straight because the more memorable parts are his characters, but they have nothing to do with this movie.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, never let Mike Myers work in your meat shop. (laughs) That scene is gross. (laughs) Yeah, he's not a very good butcher. (laughs) But it is the first uh, meat cute with actual meat that I can think of. Ah. Ah. Alan Arkin's good. Those scenes are funny. He's the police captain.
2: Oh, that's who that was. Okay.
1: Yeah, he's always great. So my last note on Axe Murder was just that I noticed a running theme from Wayne's World to this was the movies about his fear of commitment. So like a fear of getting older or like not wanting to grow up kind of theme. Like Mm -hmm. that feels like a very Micah Myers through line to me.